welcome to First Incision, the podcast about preparing for the General Surgery Fellowship exam. I'm your host, Amanda Nikolic. Let's get started with our team timeout. Our patient today is the hepatobiliary module from the General Surgical Curriculum, and the operation or topics we'll be covering today is liver infections. We're going to talk about liver abscesses that are pyogenic, parasitic, and some other rarer types of liver abscesses. So let's get started with bacterial or pyogenic liver abscesses. Pyogenic liver abscesses are the most common type of liver abscesses. They're more common in men compared with women, with a peak age around 50 to 60 years. They're relatively rare with an incidence of around 2 to 3 cases per 100,000 people. The pathogenesis of bacterial or pyogenic liver abscesses include direct infection through the biliary tree, portal vein bacterial seeding, arterial hematogenous seeding, iatrogenic, traumatic, and cryptogenic, which is where there's an unknown source, most commonly in immunosuppressed patients. The risk factors for liver pyogenic abscesses include diabetes, underlying hepatobiliary or pancreatic disease, liver transplant and immunosuppression, patients who have inflammatory bowel disease, and geographic and host factors. There's also an association with colorectal neoplasia, such as in monomicrobial Klebsiella abscesses, so that's something to think about. How do liver abscesses present? Typically, they'll present with fevers, right upper quadrant pain. They may present with fatigue or malaise, can present with jaundice and diarrhea. Pyogenic liver abscesses are often polymicrobial, but they can be monomicrobial. They're typically mixed enteric and anaerobic bacteria, and the potential pathogens include enteric gram-negative bacilli, such as E. coli and Klebsiella pneumoniae, gram-positive cocci, such as Staph aureus and Strep pyogenes. If you do get a strep infection, it's important to search for simultaneous infections elsewhere, as it's often associated with multiple abscesses throughout the body, including the brain. And patients who are immunosuppressed can develop candidal or um, fungal type infections. How do you work up a patient with a potential liver abscess? You're going to start with a history of presenting complaint. So you're going to ask them about why they came in, how long their symptoms have been going for, whether they have any associated symptoms. You're going to ask about previous abdominal infections, such as cholangitis, diverticulitis, pancreatitis, cholecystitis, appendicitis, or any other type of abdominal surgery. You want to ask them about risk factors for the development of arterial seeding, so that may be intravenous drug use, recent procedures, or other sites of infection. You're going to ask them about risk factors, so diabetes, malignancy, cirrhosis, HIV or AIDS, previous transplants or other reasons to have immune suppression or use of steroids. 
not in the current COVID climate, but in good old times, we would ask about recent travel and also potentially country of origin. And also if they have any history of granulomatous or inflammatory bowel disease. On examination, you want to take the patient's OBS and see if they're generally unwell. You want to feel the liver for hepatomegaly and a tender liver edge. Examine the patient for jaundice and see if you can feel any other masses or sources of uh, infection elsewhere in the abdomen or elsewhere on the body. For workup, you're going to send some blood tests. This should include a full blood count, UEC and CRP, liver function tests, coagulation studies, a blood gas and blood cultures. Most commonly with a pyogenic liver abscess, you'll see the ALP elevated and you want to have a look at the white cell count and have a look and see if it's mainly a lymphopenia driving that or whether they may have a eosinophilia, which may push you more towards a echinococcus or amoebic type presentation of an abscess. Going down that same line, you want to rule out those potential causes for this presentation. And so you're going to send a echinococcus serology and antigen testing as well as entamoeba histolytica specific antigen or PCR testing. And you want to send a stool culture for over cysts and parasites. In terms of imaging findings for a pyogenic abscess, on chest x-ray you may see an elevated hemidiaphragm, a pleural effusion on that side, or infiltrates in the right lower lobe. An ultrasound is a useful initial test because it has quite a high sensitivity and can also have a look at the gallbladder and intrahepatic and extrahepatic bile ducts looking for a local cause of the abscess. A pyogenic liver abscess may be hyperechoic or hypoechoic, and there may be internal echoes or septations that reflect debris or septation of the abscess. A CT though is a gold standard test for a liver abscess. It's got a very high sensitivity and if you use IV contrast, it can give you a lot more anatomical detail about the liver lesion, its proximity to major structures in the biliary tree, um, as well as help with the diagnosis. It can look for complications of the abscess, such as thrombosis of vessels around there or potential rupture of the abscess and can also have a look at the rest of the abdomen looking for potential causes of the abscess such as appendicitis or diverticulitis. On CT scan a pyogenic liver abscess will look like a well-defined lesion with central hypoattenuation and often with IV contrast it will have enhancement of the rim of the abscess. It can be quite complex with a main infection and lobulated subcollections, and it can have quite an irregular border. MRI is equally sensitive, but isn't often done for an abscess. It may be done with an MRCP to look at the relationship of the abscess to the biliary system or for a cause of concurrent cholangitis. And a tagged white cell count is another type of scan that can be used to distinguish an abscess from another type of hypoechoic mass in the liver if the diagnosis is not clear. So how do you manage a pyogenic liver abscess? To start with, you want to have a suspicion that this is the potential etiology and do the investigations like we've talked about. 
Often the first step after blood cultures is to give the patient antibiotics, and this will usually be done in liaison with the infectious diseases team. If the abscess is small, with a cutoff of usually around less than three centimetres, then antibiotics may be sufficient. And typically the antibiotics of choice would be something like Piptaz or Keftriaxone and Metronidazole. Once the blood cultures return and an identification and susceptibility of a bacteria is available, then the antibiotic choice can be tailored. The total course of antibiotics should be six weeks, and the patient doesn't necessarily need intravenous antibiotics the whole time. If you're unable to drain, then you may need a longer term of the IV contrast compared to changing to an oral agent. For a patient who has an abscess that's more than three centimetres in size, often percutaneous drainage of the abscess will be undertaken. This is usually done under local anaesthetic with either ultrasound or CT guided by the radiologists. In my experience, percutaneous drainage and antibiotics are the mainstay of treatment for pyogenic liver abscesses, as well as identifying and treating any underlying cause of the infection. If the abscess is quite viscous or multilobulated or there's multiple abscesses, then percutaneous drainage may fail and surgical drainage may need consideration. Often in this setting, a MDT discussion would be have with specialists involved in the patient's care. If a patient wasn't responding to percutaneous drainage, then the options include open or laparoscopic surgical drainage or endoscopic ultrasound-guided or ERCP drainage. Lucky for us, in our curriculum, it says we need to understand the role for surgical drainage but not know how to do it. So I'm not going to go into detail about that. But in general, options include either just a drainage procedure or resection depending on the extent of disease and amount of destruction of the surrounding liver parenchyma. In terms of follow-up for a pyogenic liver abscess, usually in my institution at least, we would rescan the patient at six weeks at the end of their antibiotic treatment to ensure resolution of the liver abscess. And also we would organize some investigations looking for an underlying cause if it had not been found, which would include a colonoscopy. These patients are typically also followed up by the infectious diseases team. Now let's move on to talk about hydatid liver disease. Hydatid liver cysts are caused by the zoonotic parasite, tapeworms, echinococcus granulosus, or less commonly, echinococcus multilocularis. These types of tapeworms are endemic in sheep grazing areas of the Mediterranean, the Middle and Far East, South America, Australia, East Africa, and New Zealand. And it has to do with contact with dogs and sheep. The human is an accidental host at the larval stage of the parasite's life cycle. And ingestion of the larva or the egg then leads it to hatch, attached to the intestinal mucosa, and it goes up through the portal vein to get to the liver. The epidemiology is that it's very rare, less than five per 100,000 people in Australia. It's much more common in men than women, and the mean age is 45 years old. It most commonly presents as a single organ and a single cyst, and most commonly in the right lobe of the liver. 
the life cycle of the echinococcus turns out is a favorite question for the exam. So I'm going to go through that now. So the echinococcus granulosus tapeworm resides as an adult tapeworm in the small bowel of the definitive host, which is the dog. The dog then sheds the eggs in their feces, and these then infect an intermediate host, such as sheep, but also can be pigs and cattle, and even humans. Following ingestion of these eggs by the accidental human host, the larva is released from the egg due to interaction with bile salts and trypsin. And then the larvae penetrate into the lamina propria in the jejunum and are transported via the portal circulation into the liver or it can be via lymphatics to the lung. The cyst is usually visible after three weeks and can measure up to three centimetres after three months. A mature hydatid cyst consists of a number of layers of tissue. The innermost layers are called the endocyst, and this is the germinal layer which is fluid-filled and responsible for the production of hydatid fluid, has an absorptive function for nutrition, and also is where daughter cysts are formed, which are called endocysts. The other most important component of this central layer, the germinal layer, is the brood capsules, which are essentially little cystic spaces that contain the protoscolices. And these are the aspects of the cyst that basically, once they're released, will form into a new tapeworm. The next layer is called the exocyst, and this is an external laminated acellular hyla membrane around the germinal layer. And then the last layer is also called the ectocyst or pericyst, and this is a host-derived external fibrous capsule. So to complete the life cycle, when a cyst-containing organ is ingested by the definitive host, which is actually usually a dog, which is the primary host, the protoscolices evaginate and then the scolices of the organism attach to the intestine of the definitive host and develop into adult tapeworms and this completes the life cycle. So how do hydatid cysts present? Typically, they are found as asymptomatic small cysts. However, they can present with right upper quadrant pain, especially as the cyst enlarges. It can form an inflammatory reaction around the cyst. And if this is close to the edge of the liver, it can cause an irritation to the parietal peritoneum. Acute pain suggests an infected cyst or rupture of the cyst. Hepatic abscesses can form as a secondary infection. And if the cyst ruptures, the antigenic cyst fluid is released into the peritoneum and the circulation, and this can cause an acute anaphylactic reaction. If the cyst ruptures or grows into the biliary tree, then this can lead to jaundice, cholangitis, and rarely acute pancreatitis. And rarely the cyst can cause pressure on the um, hepatic veins, causing a Bud Chiari-type syndrome. They can also put pressure on the biliary tree and lead to jaundice. And often a hydatid cyst will cause abnormal LFTs, which may be another way that they are investigated. On examination, patients may have hepatomegaly or a tender liver edge, and they may have fevers or symptoms of infection. 
intensive workup, full blood count, looking for eosinophilia, UEC, CMP, and liver function tests are indicated. Laboratory testing for echinococcus can be sent using patient serology. There's a couple of different types of tests that are looked for. The first is looking for antibodies using a indirect hemagglutination antibody test or a latex agglutination test. These two tests have about an 80% sensitivity for liver-only hydatid disease. Another type of test, which is an IgG ELISA test, looking for the IgG antibodies to hydatid, is the gold standard and has a sensitivity of up to 93% for liver-only disease. In terms of imaging for hydatid disease, there are some characteristic features that can be seen on imaging that help to confirm a diagnosis of hydatid disease. The different types of imaging modalities you might use include ultrasound, CT or MRI scan. Ultrasound is considered the gold standard screening test and there is a WHO classification of the imaging findings on ultrasound of hepatic hydatid cysts. I would definitely recommend having a look at some pictures of this classification system because I think it would be fair game for them to show us this sort of image in the exam. This classification system splits up into six different groups, the imaging findings. The first group is called CL, which just means cystic lesion. And this is usually a unilocular, anechoic cystic lesion with no internal echoes or septations. These findings are not pathognomonic of echinococcus and no further diagnostic tests or serology are required. The next five groups are called CE1 to 5, and CE stands for cystic echinococcus. CE1 is the active stage, so it's a pure fluid collection containing uniformly anechoic cysts with fine internal echoes that may only be visible after a patient is repositioned. And these internal echoes represent what is called hydatid sand which is a fine sand-like sediment that happens within the hydatid cyst, which is, occurs due to degeneration of the worms themselves or the protoscolices themselves. CE2 is also an active stage of disease, and this is a fluid collection with a split wall, which looks like a floating membrane, and it's described as a rosette or honeycomb appearance. And so the cyst has internal septations and the septa are representative of the walls of daughter cysts within the hydatid cyst itself. CE3 is the transitional stage. And this is where you have a fluid collection that has septa that are described as a honeycomb membrane. And this is an evolving appearance of daughter cysts within the encompassing parent cyst. 3A is where the daughter cysts have detached, and this is known as the water lily sign. And 3B is where the daughter cysts are sitting within a solid matrix. CE4 is an inactive or degenerative cyst, and it's got a heterogeneous echographic appearance and patterns with the absence of daughter cysts, and it resembles a ball of wool with mixed hypoechoic and hyperechoic matrix. And this indicates degenerating membranes within the cyst. And CE5 is an inactive and degenerative cyst. And this is where it's got a thick calcified wall 
which can either be completely or partially calcified, and often there's a cone-shaped shadow behind the cyst. These different appearances, as well as I mentioned, refer to an active, transitional, or inactive group. So CE1 and 2 are considered active, and they're almost always viable cysts, so they've got viable or alive protoscolices within them. CE3 is a transitional group, which may or may not be viable, and CE4 and 5 basically are an involuted or solid cyst that is nearly always found to be non-viable. CT scan and MRI may show similar findings with the cyst with internal septae, hydatid sand or daughter cysts within the main cavity. They may also demonstrate external rupture of the cyst or wall thickening, which may suggest a secondary infection. On diffusion-weighted imaging, MRI may be more useful in differentiating hydatid cysts from simple cysts and any finding of discontinuity of the cyst wall can indicate a rupture of the cyst. The last imaging modality that may be used with hydatid disease is an ERCP or MRCP, which may be performed if there's a concern about communication with the biliary tree. Typically, the diagnosis of a hydatid cyst is made based on the imaging findings and the hydatid serology. Fine needle aspiration or biopsy of the cyst is usually contraindicated because you can make the diagnosis other ways and there's always a risk of free rupture of the cyst into the peritoneal cavity with biopsy, which can result in anaphylaxis. So how do we manage hydatid cysts? Hydatid cysts should be managed by a specialty team with clinical experience treating this problem. And it'll depend on the size of the cyst, the symptoms, location, what the presentation of the disease is, and also where the cyst looks like it is up to in its life cycle. Management of hydatid cysts typically involves medical and surgical approaches. In terms of medical management, patients should receive at least three months of an anti-helminthic drug such as albendazole or mebendazole. And this is usually at a dose of 400 to 600 milligrams twice daily. And the idea is that you're trying to kill the parasite by impairing its glucose uptake. This treatment is indicated in uncomplicated CE1 and CE3A cysts. And if there's multiple small cysts, if they're deep in the liver parenchyma or if they're cysts in the peritoneal cavity, then this may be all that's needed in regards to treatment for these cysts. All patients who are having albendazole or mebendazole therapy should have monitoring of their liver function tests and also monitoring second weekly for development of bone marrow suppression, which can be side effects of these drugs. Surgery is the principal treatment for large active, symptomatic, or complicated hepatic cystic echinococcus. If a cyst is symptomatic, if it's CE2 to CE3B on the imaging, if cysts are large, so more than five centimeters, and if there's multiple daughter cysts, if the cysts are superficially located or infected, if they're communicating with the biliary tree or exerting a mass effect on adjacent structures, then these would be indications for surgery. 
And all patients who are going to have surgery should have preoperatively bendazole. It should be at least for one month, but ideally three months preoperatively to try to sterilize the cyst before surgery. This will both reduce the risk of complications if the cysts are spilt, as well as reduces the risk of recurrence of the cysts. The surgical options include a anatomical hepatectomy, a pericystectomy, which is removal of the whole cyst, including the wall, removing just the endocyst within the pericyst, or just draining it and injecting the scolicidal agent. The principles of surgery for hydatid disease include protection of the peritoneal cavity with hypertonic packs, and you can also use other things such as an Aaron's hydatid suction cone, suction of the contents and removal of all viable elements, inspection of the cyst cavity to make sure that there's no communication with the biliary tree, and if there's not, then usually injection or infiltration of a scolicidal agent into the cyst, and then obliteration of the cavity. In terms of the choice of whether to remove just the endocyst inside the pericyst or to do a pericystectomy, removing the whole cyst, there was a retrospective study that looked at the removal in both of these ways, and they found that there was increased morbidity in the patients who had some of the cyst left behind. So their preference was to do a cystopericystectomy with complete removal of the cyst and pericyst. Obviously, it depends a little bit on whether or not there are important adjacent structures as to whether you can go outside of the cyst or whether you need to leave some of the cyst behind. But you want to try to not open the endocyst. It'll be like a bit of a balloon um, and you don't want to open that because then you can spill the daughter cysts or the um, brood capsules, which can then lead to anaphylaxis or seeding of the hydatid in the peritoneal cavity. And that's why you want to pack around the wound and around what you're doing with hypertonic saline-soaked packs. So even if they do fall out, they um, will die on the packs or stay on the packs. In terms of the pericystectomy, as I mentioned, you have to go out and around the actual cyst capsule itself. In addition to it being close to other structures, these cysts can be very big and that can distort the anatomy. So veins and things can be collapsed. So this risks injury to vessels. And you may instead prefer to do an anatomical resection if it's a very large cyst. In terms of the drainage of the cyst, this is an option where if you are worried about major structures nearby, you can give the patient three months of preoperative albendazole, aspirate the cyst at operation and ensure that there's no bile in the cyst and then inject a scoliocidal agent into the cyst. And then you can open it up and suck out all the daughter cysts without spilling them um, and obviously protect around with hypertonic saline in the packs. The reason you have to make sure there's no bile and that the cyst isn't communicating with any biliary radicals is because if you inject scolicidal agents into the biliary system, then it causes multiple biliary strictures, which is a pretty terrible outcome for the patient. Types of scolicidal agents include betadine, 20% hypertonic saline, 95% ethyl alcohol, and cetramide chlorhexidine solutions. So you can understand that injecting that into the biliary tree could be very nasty. 
There is another procedure which is a percutaneous treatment alternative to surgery, and this is PAIR, PAIR, which stands for puncture, aspiration, injection, and re-aspiration. It's not used as much due to the risk of anaphylaxis and also risk of developing um, sclerosing cholangitis if a communication with the cyst of the biliary tree is present. And basically, it involves what I talked about for the open aspiration, where you um, aspirate and then inject a scolicidal agent into the cyst, and that can be combined with albendazole, and then you re-aspirate out the fluid from the cyst. Other potential risks of this procedure include bleeding, infection, intraperitoneal spillage of the cyst contents, and a biliary fistula, as we talked about. And there's also a small risk of allergic reactions or anaphylaxis with this procedure as well. Obviously, the cyst has to be radiologically accessible and also of a size that's both big enough and small enough that would make it ideal for a pair procedure. Moving on now to amoebic liver abscesses. 10% of liver abscesses will be due to the parasite Entamoeba histolytica. It's found in 10% of the world's population. Males are much more likely to develop an amoebic abscess compared to females. And this is despite the normal rates of infection in males and females. It's thought to potentially be due to hormonal factors or alcohol-related hepatocellular damage, creating a nidus for portal seeding, more commonly in men than women. The liver abscess is the most common extra-intestinal manifestation of entamoeba histolytica infection, and rupture of the abscess occurs in less than 20% of the time. Entamoeba histolytica is endemic in areas of India, Africa, Mexico, and South America. The pathophysiology of infection with entamoeba histolytica is the fecal-oral spread route. Basically, the cystic form of the parasite is ingested orally by humans. The trophocytes are then released from the cyst and multiply in the colon, especially in the cecum, and this can cause diarrhea but only in about 30% of cases. The trophocytes then reach the liver through the portal venous and lymphatic circulation, or can potentially be by direct extension through the colon wall and the peritoneum into the liver capsule, which is terrifying to think about. So how do they present? They present similarly to pyogenic abscesses, with vague right upper quadrant pain, fevers, night sweats, weight loss, diarrhea, and sometimes with jaundice. The diagnosis is usually made based on the imaging findings and serology testing for entamoeba histolytica antibodies, but unfortunately this can represent a previous infection rather than a current illness. And you can also send a stool test for over cysts and parasites, and this will be positive in about one-third of patients with a entamoeba histolytica liver abscess. In terms of blood tests, you're going to send off the normal bloods, You may see an ALP that is elevated, leukocytosis, and obviously you'll send serology for E. histolytica. An ultrasound may demonstrate a hypoechoic lesion with internal echoes and no Doppler signal in the center of the abscess. And a CT will show what looks like a normal liver abscess with an enhancing peripheral rim and hypodense center, 
most commonly in the posterior right lobe. Interestingly, on white cell scan, a pyogenic bacterial liver abscess will be hot, but an amoebic abscess will look cold because it contains amoebic cells with dead and dying hepatocytes around it. The treatment for a amoebic liver abscess is oral metronidazole. This is typically done for 7 to 10 days and usually 800 milligrams orally TDS. And you should see a result after even just three days. After treatment, you also need to give intraluminal agents such as paramomycin orally to clear the colonized colon, otherwise they can relapse. Percutaneous drainage is only indicated in a failure of medical management, or it may be done in the setting of an unclear diagnosis, or if there's a large peripherally placed abscess you're worried may rupture. The characteristic appearance of the aspirate for an amoebic liver abscess is described as an anchovy paste appearance. Sorry if you were eating. Surgeries only indicate if medical management fails and percutaneous therapy also fails, which is pretty unlikely. And the other important thing to know is that amoebic liver abscesses may take up to two years to completely resolve on imaging. So to finish us off, I just wanted to talk about some other less common pathogens and causes of liver abscesses. The first is Klebsiella pneumoniae, which I have mentioned is often an isolate in liver abscesses, but it's associated with a syndrome called invasive liver abscess syndrome, which is most commonly found in Asia and is where there's a monomicrobial isolate of Klebsiella pneumonia and no predisposing factors. The next is tuberculosis. This is uncommon and usually presents as multiple small abscesses in the liver. The next one is milioidosis, and this is an infection with Burkholderia pseudomallei. And this is a bacteria that is endemic in areas of Southeast Asia and also in the Northern Territory in Australia. It can cause abscesses pretty much anywhere and is found in the soil and most commonly causes infection in the wet season. The next one is infections with fungi. And specifically, hepatosplenic candidiasis can cause microabscesses in the liver and spleen and is most common in hematological malignancies and often occurs following recovery from neutropenia. And the last infection I wanted to talk about is infection with schistosomiasis. Schistosomiasis is a liver fluke that is endemic in Latin America, Africa and Asia, and it's a waterborne infection. It's an important cause of liver fibrosis, and it causes a granulomatous inflammatory reaction in the pre-sinusoidal periportal spaces. Early infection causes an inflammatory response that can lead to damage in the liver, but doesn't have an obvious systemic evidence of the disease, so it can be difficult to pick up. Chronic infection leads to scarring and fibrosis, and this is not reversible even with treatment. The diagnosis is detection of the parasitic eggs in the stool, and you can also do serology testing for an immunodiagnosis. Treatment is with an anti-helminth therapy, such as praziquantel. And that completes our episode on liver infections. 
Please leave me a review, rate the podcast and subscribe. It makes it easier for others to find. It's time to close up. Thanks for listening to First Incision. If you have any comments or feedback, send us a message at firstincisionpodcast at gmail.com or follow us on Instagram at First Incision. Happy studying! Happy studying!